You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. JP Moreland has been somebody that I've learned from and looked up to for several years. When I was in seminary, I read his book, Scaling the Secular City. And then when I was serving at Central Christian Church in Las Vegas, um, a friend of mine, Paul Trainer, actually flew JP in a couple of times to speak to our staff and to offer seminars on apologetics and philosophy, which is JP's wheelhouse. He's a professor at Biola University in California. Obviously, he teaches at their undergrad and their grad school. He has four earned degrees, uh, including a master's of theology, a master's of philosophy, and a PhD in philosophy. And I remember even back then just being blown away by JP, just his posture. Uh, he's an Irenic person. Um, he, he's a genius. He's absolutely brilliant, but also has an incredible heart for the local church and to help people really make sense of why following Jesus is such a great idea. So I've been a fan of JP's for some time, but I was really woken up. I think it was last year I read an article in Christianity Today that JP published on his anxiety attacks. Turns out starting in 2003 and then again in 2013, JP underwent such chronic anxiety that it debilitated him. He had to take time off teaching. He ended up in a hospital in group therapy for a while. And then what came out of those very difficult experiences was a whole different ministry for JP uh, that, that took him in a whole other direction than what he's most famous for, which is philosophy and apologetics. He now also, on top of those two, he speaks and writes on the nature of chronic anxiety, uh, anxiety conditions. And he has this amazing book called Finding Quiet. He'll reference it in this interview, where he dives very bravely and profoundly into his own anxiety, but he very quickly gives us a multitude of tools that any of us, whether we are debilitated by anxiety or not, any of us can use. And so our conversation picks up with JP, just talking about the tail end of his second anxiety attack in 2013. Both of them were the day that the school year ended. That's when I got hit. And they were also the two most stressful years of teaching I had ever had. Uh, I know that I'm not just making that up. And so... What I had apparently done was to just stuff all the fear and anxiety that I was having so I could function and finish the school year. And boom, when the school year was over with and the pressure was off, it just blew. So I I had it happen again. And um, I was going to try to teach my classes that coming end of August. And I tried for about a week and a half to two weeks, and I and I just couldn't do it. I was too scared, so they had to fill in, and I uh, I, I I went on a journey at that time uh, to to do research and to to I believe God actually led me to uh, to use my skills with His guidance and read everything I could about anxiety and to begin to practice the things I found the most helpful and to try to share these in some way with the body of Christ. And so that's why the book Finding Quiet came out, which is really the result of my own journey and what I found helped me actually, and to destigmatize this thing a little bit. 
Yeah, and you've had to fight the stigma. You talked about preaching at a church where you, I think you gave the congregation this incredible gift when you get up behind a pulpit and you say, psychological medicine is a gift from God and I benefited from it. But then you, you were still called into a room by some of the leaders of that church saying, we, you know, we don't do that here. We don't believe that here. I never got asked back. And uh, in fact, the pastor sent me an email. He was in Europe uh, when I preached for him that Sunday. And when he got back, he sent me an email kind of scolding me about that and said, if I needed pastoral counseling, he'd be glad to help me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm not kidding. And of course I did, <laughs> but I did need pastor, but I didn't go to him. But uh, no. that just shows the, the, the complete misunderstanding of he, biblical anthropology and that our bodies and brains are an important part of this whole thing. Not the whole, of course, but, but part of it. Yeah. That 2013 attack you had, um, what struck me, JP, is by, by 2013, you are so many decades into being considered a highly regarded public speaker. You've been in so many rooms in so many places in the world. Right. You've been a Biola Talbot for quite a while. Yes. Um, can you help us understand the utter disorientation of being afraid in the very room where you've taught for years? Well, I've spoken on 200 college campuses and in audiences of up to 10,000 people, hostile audiences where I had to be protected after I spoke. Uh, so, uh, you know, I've been spit at. Uh, you know, so I'm, come on, I've been teaching, by that time I've been teaching for, since Noah's flood, practically. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, when you have a, a, a severe anxiety, you you distort your perception of reality. Re you see things that aren't there. And I, I don't mean pink elephants. I mean, the world looks, the world just looks different than the way it is. And so yeah. I... I would actually go to my classroom about an hour and a half before class began when there was nobody in there. And I would just walk around the classroom. I'd pull the podium and the stool up front and sit down and pretend I was lecturing just so I could kind of maybe the, not be afraid of the room itself. Uh, I, I've never done that in my life. And so yeah. I was afraid of walking into that room. And then when the students started coming in, I just thought, I can't do this. I can't do it. And so, uh, dear brother, I, I did not see the world uh, the way it was. And I want to just say to our, our listeners here, if you're, if you're hearing this and you're undergoing some depression and anxiety, um, uh, you're going to have thoughts and they're, they're thought distorters. Um, in Finding Quiet, I list 10 different kinds of thought distorters that seem to be pretty typical. I'm really good at a couple of them, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> but but uh, it's helpful to find which one you do so you can get power, you can name it. And so I just want to say to our listeners, um, um, try to uh, move your thoughts away from these distorted thoughts. And... Um, don't believe everything that seems real to you if you're undergoing uh, trust, uh, anxiety, or depression. Because trust me, uh, things 
probably aren't the way you think they are. And that's what uh, happened to me, thought distortion. That's what struck me, JP, is when you were in that group therapy and you were the people you couldn't relate to. By You actually wrote in the book, Biola was chugging along fine without me. What leapt out of from the page to me, as somebody who's a, been a fan of your work for a long time, is there's no way that's actually true. Like certainly somebody has stepped into your classes and they're taking care of that. Right. But I, I believe what was really true is the key uh, people at Biola Talbot were saying, there's no one like JP. Like oh. there is a hole that's been left behind. Um, when, when you first start to notice these thought distorters, how do you begin to know that your thinking is distorted before it gets too distorted and gets you in its grip? Um, the, 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 the first of all, if, if you, if you get the book finding quiet, I would be sure that you go through that list and identify the ones that you struggle with. Okay. Uh, and there may be more than one. Uh, so what, what you do is you ask every morning, you ask the Holy spirit to search you and to, to examine and know you. And lead you, uh, see if there's a hurtful way in you, and lead you in shalom. So um, I wanted to become more attentive to my self-talk and to the way I was thinking, talking to myself about reality. But a lot of times they become habits, and you're not, you don't notice them because they're habituated. Yeah. So, so by asking the spirit's help, I became uh, uh, co-labored. And uh, became more aware. So what happened is if I would spot a, 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 a pattern of thinking that was like one of the ones I knew I engaged in, that gave me a, a, a reason to dismiss, to say this thought is just a bad habit. Uh, so that was one thing. The second thing is that if this thought was something that was kind of uh, that I could notice was uh, habitual that I that I brought up all the time, and it wasn't an immediate threat, but it was about something that uh, is going to happen in the future, and and uh, so on. Then that was another uh, tip off to me that this is just a, a gr ingrooved brain message that's triggered in my soul from from grooves in my brain that I've habituated, like muscle memory. So those were two uh, keys to me. Uh, is this habitual? And is it about something that isn't an imminent danger? Uh, is it uh, fitting a pattern of the way that I've done this? And so at that point, I, I began to habituate the decision to say, this sucker feels real. <laughs> this thought really feels real. But it just can't possibly be, and I know why it isn't. And so then I got busy uh, doing something else uh, and trying to refocus my attention on something to take the power out of the thought. So I don't know if that helps, but that, oh, those are some. Yeah. I think it's remarkable because I, my theory is one of the primary reasons that we don't uh, experience profound transformation and freedom that the gospel offers is I don't think we know how to doubt our doubts or be skeptical of our skepticism. And so we do have this story we tell ourselves, and we just fully believe it. We do. You're absolutely right. Uh, thank you for that. that. That's so key, doubting your doubts. And uh, 
a very good point. Yeah, that's what you're describing is you're saying, I believe this is true with all my life and it cannot possibly be true. Exactly. And then you write about neuroplasty and and the disciplines. One of the other things that's triggering for me, JP, is anxiety is such a broad topic and people are so desperate for relief. But you've already referenced, um, you know, in the book, here's what I write. And I'm struck that what you've offered for us is deep work. It's years of work and that the nature of a 30-minute podcast almost violates what's really true, which is this is a long, disciplined daily journey that takes months and years. That's right. And yet this will, what this will do is it will spark uh, the uh, attention of some people that might uh, either get the book and continue listening to your podcasts to continue to keep it before them and get help in practical ways of dealing with it. So this is very much worth our time to do this. Yeah. Um, Another reaction I had to the book, I am fascinated uh, looking at my own journey of pain and others at how God redeems our pain. I went through an era where I thought, oh man, my pain is the reason I'm in ministry. Like I'm acting out my dysfunction. It's not that I'm actually serving people and just managing my dysfunction. What I've come to now know is true is that God has redeemed my dysfunction. This is my long-winded way of saying, you write poignantly about being in an environment, your dad dies when you were seven, he was sick your whole childhood. The unspoken rule in your house is we don't talk about it, you don't grieve. And so from a very young age, the language I would use is you made a childhood vow about that. Yes. And what has come out of my theory, this is what I'd like to test with you, JP. My theory is what has come out of that wound is this intellect that has been such a gift for the kingdom. I remember reading Scaling the Secular City. I've heard you speak in person, your contribution to the field of philosophy and reason and apologetics. You are you are one of the world's top uh, people we reach oh, for. Well, well, this is that's kind. And I, and I know I, I don't mean to make you uncomfortable. But no. My point is you have this intellect that I wonder if you pursued the intellect as a response to keep the pain away. And yet somehow God has used that as a gift to the kingdom. That's a very convoluted question. But what's your take on that? Well, I think you're right. I, I actually do. I don't and I don't think you would say that that's the whole reason I went into this area. But right. But there's no question that that played an important role in me moving into the life of the mind. And uh, I, it it is another example of where we don't have to waste our suffering that 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 there's a that it can be redeemed and that and that doesn't make suffering good it's it's bad but it can produce something that outweighs it that over that uh, trumps it and uh, boy thank thank god that that actually happens in our lives that's not one we have to take by faith you know we we've seen it happen yeah yeah paul, you know when paul says god god's uh, Boy, I've, I've I've lost the quote, but um, God's power is God's power is made perfect in our weakness. I think we say, "Thank God, I got that over with, so yeah. we don't have to be weak anymore." That's right. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, but read, reading you as a veteran scholar and professor practicing in your own classroom, 
I just, that was such a beautiful image. Thank you. It was yeah. true. It really <laughs> happened <laughs> several times. <laughs> okay. Uh, I also, have, I'm, I'm reaching back to the recesses of my brain. I, I seem to recall that you have found a lot of life in the charismatic church tradition. Very much so. Uh, talk to us about how that has been a gift in your anxiety. Yeah. Well, um, I, I go to a vineyard church, which is a uh, third wave. And uh, what that means is that when we're saved, we're baptized with the Spirit. There is no second baptism. And the gift of tongues is a minor gift. It's not for everybody. I have no, I, It's not a big deal to me, uh, but I'm not against it. But what, what, what I do have, what I have seen is a, a real emphasis on the, the presence of the kingdom, though it's not yet in its full form. And what that means is that this put on the table for me, he, praying and seeing the sick healed, uh, casting out demons, uh, which I have done, um, having prophetic words of knowledge that are so specific that there simply is no even remote possibility that that could not have been God because uh, they're too detailed. And I and so I entered a, in a world where, uh, you know, it became evident that God was still doing things today. And then um, I, I've read probably 400 or so near-death experience accounts. And uh, uh, John Burke's book, Imagine Heaven, really, really, I think, uh, relieved me that 95% of these turn out to actually be biblically consistent rather than what I thought I was worried, but they, but they're, they're kooks out there and they're about, yeah. but most of these are not co contradictory to scripture and they and the evidence for them is overwhelming. So what this did is it's, I already knew from my, from my evidence and the, uh, arguments that I had, uh, uh, evaluated for and against Christianity, and um, I'd already seen some answers to prayer. I knew God was real, but then I really knew he was real. When you start seeing stuff in your own life, like if you've ever had a specific answer to prayer, dude, that's comforting. <laughs> you think, hey, he, he actually knows where I live. <laughs> and so by entering into that branch of the church, and I, which I think should be balanced out with the word and, and very uh, valuing of the life of the mind so it doesn't become kooky, uh, uh, that it can be an important uh, way of filling out the Christian life and helping you realize that God is really here and uh, he is not unaware of my situation. Yeah. Yeah. The the majority of the book, uh, what I appreciate it is it is uh, tools to help people uh, move through anxiety. You have you believe strongly in the power of habit and reprogramming the brain. Um, let's just tackle one of the tools, JP, on the podcast. Could you talk us through the four-step solution? I sure will. This is um, a, a solution that was developed by uh, Jeffrey Schwartz who was a neuroscientist at UCLA, born Jewish, became an atheist, and about 12 or 13 years ago committed his life to Jesus. And he is a solid evangelical now. Uh, and he wrote a book uh, that uh, called You're Not Your Brain. 
and I I endorse the book for him. And and um, he has a way, a, a, a practical, habitual procedure to get rid of uh, anxiety and depression producing self-talk. And uh, and a, a lot, not all, but a lot of anxiety is actually the way we talk and think about things, talk to ourselves. So step one, uh, the first two steps are attempts to try to take the power out of these messages. And so you, you say to yourself, oh, my gosh, what if what what if uh, what if this happens? Oh, it's going to be horrible. Uh, and you stop and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That is nothing but a triggered brain message. And that's a, a groove that's a habit in my brain that triggers in my mind a thought. That's all that is, is a bad habit. Not only that, but I can actually give you the name of it because I've looked at the 10 and, and this is an example of me uh, catastrophizing. Uh, magnifying things. Okay, so uh, research was done in 2007 uh, that indicated that if a patient who is physically ill can be given by the doctor the name of their illness, that helps them be able to handle more pain, and it helps them uh, be able to cope with their disease better because it gives some sense of control instead of this foreign invader. Well, what these first two steps do is they give you a place to kind of get your foot hold and to say, well, I, I don't have to listen to this because this is not, this is baloney. And here's why, you know, you got two steps. Okay. The third step <clears throat> is uh, to refocus. And that means to turn away from the thought and to get into what's called flow, and I'll tell you about that in a second. But but this is the opposite of what I was doing, which is the largest thing that kills us in anxiety, and that is I was ruminating. And that means mulling over and over again the, fe the fearful thought and well, how I was going to handle it and all that sort of thing. Now, uh when you first are dealing with a, a thought uh, that's self, that's troubling, cognitive behavioral therapy, where you try to challenge the thought, you say, wait a minute, uh, is that going to happen? No. If it happens, it's the end of the world. Okay. That's, and I think that's good. But after a while, if the thought becomes habitual, then you that's you're digging the groove deeper if you keep doing that. At that point, you need to try to forget about it. Well, how do you do that? You turn to do something that gets you into what psychologists call flow. And flow, we've all experienced, is when you are so caught up into something, you lose track of time. Mm, yeah. it, it could be, and it doesn't have to be something spiritual. It could be playing solitaire. It could be uh, playing some kind of game, uh, reading a novel, checking your email. Uh, it could be listening to worship music. It, it Whatever works, experiment with this. But yeah. if you can turn to something where you get wrapped up in it, then the troublesome thought drifts away. Then the fourth step is that after a while, and I, when I first started doing this, it might take me 20 minutes. Uh, 
uh, in reading a novel uh, to get distance from it. Now, because uh, it's a habit, uh, it doesn't take me but just a minute or two. So you you got to stick with it. Uh, you're going to be lousy at it at first because when you're trying to learn to do anything new, we're always tennis or whatever. You're lousy. Uh, so just don't work. You, you, that, you should expect that. But if you stick with it, you'll get good at tennis or Spanish or anxiety. So uh, that's uh, that's the four-step solution. Then you can reevaluate and say, how did I do and what can I improve and so on. Yeah. Yeah. And you write about, you go into great depth about contemplative prayer and the power of gratitude. And, and then you just very kind of casually mentioned that, you know, previously – an anxiety attack was basically generated because of a critic who was out to demean your character, malign you. But since you've done these practices, you are now uh, thriving emotionally with four different kinds of cancer, multiple surgeries, and unbelievable medical challenges you've yeah. faced. It's really a phenomenal testimony. Well, it was, um, uh, uh, my wife's in the other room here, and she could come in and tell you that it just kind of didn't bother me. <laughs> I was, I mean, I, I, I was even shocked. I, I just sort of, well, I, you know, I wouldn't even pay attention to when I had surgery. Uh, I, I had, you know, a couple of days before I knew it was coming, but a couple of days I'd start getting ready and, you know, but uh, the whole thing would just, was kind of no big deal to me. Hi, friends. Here's the thing. I don't believe life change happens by reading a book or listening to a podcast. I think those are great entry tools, but if you want to experience profound transformation, you have to dialogue with people you trust. You have to test your assumptions about life and you have to bravely practice a new way of living. That's why in March 10th and 11th, 2020, right here in beautiful Colorado, I'm hosting a two-day facilitated experience to help you do exactly that. For two days, we'll go over all the major concepts in managing leadership anxiety. You'll be sitting at round tables with lots of discussion, lots of interaction time to give you the opportunity to not only learn some principles and techniques, but put them into practice right there and then. That's why we're calling it a facilitated experience, not a conference. Conferences are great, but you often just sit and listen. And of course, sometimes you grab a group of friends to talk it through with. But this whole two-day experience is designed to get you interacting early so you can go from being managed by anxiety to managing it. For more information on what we'll cover and for tickets, visit stevecusswords.com. For people who are newer to noticing particularly chronic anxiety, I try to help them to notice it first in either a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut. If they can begin to notice it, they can actually begin to intervene earlier. Where does it first start for you? Um, it first starts uh, in my chest area, and uh, I just feel some electricity and uh, uh in my chest and then it goes to my brain and I start uh, feeling uh, kind of like my brain is uh, 
highly activated. And then I start having thoughts that I'm aware of that are fearful thoughts. But bodily, it begins for me in my chest. Yeah. And I think your testimony is you used to just let that carry you down a dark path, but now you have these early interventions to That's right. stop it. That's right. How many times out of 10, if you had to say, do you think you're able to stop it versus let it get a hold of you? Not to the point of debilitation, but just where you're caught up in it. Today? Yeah. Uh, eight, nine times out of 10. Wow. Yeah. That's profound. You got to realize I've worked at this. I mean, I really have. So it, this didn't come overnight. Uh, I started to, uh, with a lot of work I needed. And I still am working, you know. But That's uh, right. Yeah, you're yeah. 16 years into a second full-time job. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, do you still have any uh, situations that you know are going to generate anxiety in your life? I think not situations. Uh, I think... Uh, the, the, probably the, uh, the biggest thing for me would be if I have nothing to do and I'm bored, uh, I can start ruminating if I'm not careful. So I think if I've got too much idle time, uh, that's an issue for me. And I, you know, I'm, uh, Stephen, I'm going to have to, retire someday. And, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to already start processing what that will be like, you know. So I think that would be probably the an issue that is the, mo the most difficult for me. Where have you seen anxiety be contagious in a group? Boy, that's a, that, that is really such a good question. I think, I think that there are certain departments at Biola uh, where I teach that are, there are relational tensions in those departments. And when you're around that floor or you talk to people in those departments, there's just a sense of anxiety and dysfunction. And I try to avoid <laughs> those places as best I can. Yeah, yes, that's right. In a similar vein, Ed Freeman then took this idea and then there was this, uh, a gentleman named Greg Bateson, actually just up the road from you in Palo Alto, the Mental Research Institute. They began to study the nature of chronic anxiety in a group and how it makes a group get stuck where we end up in the same relational patterns that become predictable where have you seen that in a group where you know when, when a group behaves a certain way, you're not surprised? You're like, well, yeah, that's the way they're going to behave. I would say um, in, uh, in my Sunday school class at church, uh, that there, there tends to be a little bit of uh, everything's okay, you know. You know, it's uh, kind of sweep stuff under the rug, and yeah. um, and if if you challenge something somebody says, uh, even if you do it kindly, but you say, "Let me, let me, let me push back on that. See what you would think." Well, how would you deal with this problem? Well, afterwards, people think that you were being unrude or 
maybe yes. confrontational, when in reality yes. you are you're trying to facilitate uh, discussion. And uh, so those would be examples, and that creates stress, and people are kind of uh, starting to get on the edge of their seats, and and you're thinking, you know, I do this every day in class. What's going on here? You know, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, we have this terrible misunderstanding in the church that love means avoiding and being nice, right? That's part of the challenge. There. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. The final question uh, I'm really captivated by when John says that perfect love casts out fear. And I, in my own study, I've just been fascinated and I've benefited from just the visual that uh, anxiety is actually displaced by perfect love. You, It's very hard to be in the grip of anxiety when you feel loved. Um, so when in your life do you feel most fully loved? Um. There are a couple of places. One of them is with with uh, in my family. Uh, I have two married daughters that are both around forty, and they live close to us. And they just love my wife and me immensely. My wife is uh, just a very happy, cheerful, loving person, and just what I needed. And then my grandkids—they're—they're they're just. They're fine. Okay, that's number one. Number two. That's great. I I have always made a priority of finding very, very close good friends. Can't have too many of those. You can have a second tier of friends that's bigger. But that core group is, you know, it's four or five friends. And it turns out that uh, four of those are couples that my wife li- likes. So when we're together, like when we're having di- we have a dinner together or just to get together to talk, there's a tremendous sense of love and acceptance in that group. And I say that uh, one way to work through anxiety and depression is to try to make sure that you've got supportive friends uh, that are alongside you that aren't they're going to stick with you. And you're going to stick with them when they're in need. And that's, uh, we don't do this alone. So that's a big deal. Oh, that's wonderful. JP, I have been looking forward to this interview for some time. I I first stumbled across your book in a Christianity Today article. And I was so surprised that a philosopher I've learned so much from is actually writing about anxiety. (laughs) It's um. It's an amazing book. I think it's an incredible gift, and I'll I'll have a link to it in my show notes. But thank you so much for your time. Well, Steve, it's been an honor, and I bless you and what you're doing, my friend. Thank you. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 